Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. From the 13th to the 15th of December, the United States will host its second ever U.S.-Africa summit. This is significant for several reasons. Summitry is an important tool to advance cooperation between countries and build heads of state connections. Summits signal to involved parties that they value each other and are willing to invest in the relationship. And in the case of Africa, summitry is fashionable because different foreign powers recognize Africa's important role in global affairs. Beyond its natural and mineral resources and its young population, African countries represent an indispensable voting bloc at the United Nations General Assembly. Consequently, China, the United Kingdom, France, and others have been holding high-profile gatherings with African leaders for years, sometimes decades, as in the cases of the Forum on China and Africa Cooperation and the Sommet France-Afrique, which happen yearly and are hosted either in China, France, or in an African country. But the U.S. has been slow to engage Africa through summitry. The U.S. hosted its first ever U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in August 2014, during President Barack Obama's second term in office. Because the U.S. lagged behind its competitors and allies alike, the summit was a novelty. It held great promise, but U.S.-Africa relations did not change in any substantial manner. There was no follow-up summit before President Obama's term expired, and it will take eight years, the equivalent of two presidential terms, for the U.S. to host another summit. This second summit has garnered great interest in the U.S. and Africa, and President Joe Biden will have his first opportunity to make the case for Washington's renewed approach to Africa, which is much needed, and assure African leaders that this time things will be different. Joining me on Into Africa to discuss the summit today is Ms. Dana Banks. Dana is the Special Assistant to the President of the United States and Special Advisor to the U.S.-Africa Leadership Summit. Greetings, Dana, and welcome to Into Africa. You know, the entire world has its eyes on Washington for the next two weeks because the summit obviously has garnered a lot of interest across the board. Why are we holding the summit now and what is the end goal? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, the last summit was held in 2014. The world today is a much different world that we are dealing with. The challenges are greater and it really calls for partnerships around the globe, but specifically partnerships on the continent of Africa are key to the United States as we try to address global challenges like the COVID-19 pandemic, like climate change, like food security, you know, creating greater infrastructure to promote and boost greater economic growth. When the last summit took place, the African continental free trade area was not in place. And now it is, which will be the fifth largest sort of trading block in the world. 
the economic powerhouse that Africa is poised to become is going to be extremely consequential for the United States, for our private sector, for our people. And so we really wanted to make sure that the president was able to host this summit at this moment because our African partners are just that critical uh, to us in helping to combat these challenges and as we look to find solutions to address them. So it really is an exciting time. We are also looking forward to the 49 heads of state and government and the African Union commissioner coming here, coming to Washington to the president and the vice president hosting them, engagement across the cabinet uh, and senior officials uh, across the U.S. government departments and agencies for three days in, in December. It really will be an exciting and impactful moment uh, in terms of our engagement with the continent. The uh, United States um, has been engaged quite a bit across the continent, do a lot of work with humanitarian investment, heavy lift on security we saw uh, Secretary Blunt, Blinken, Administrator Samantha Power, the Ambassador to the UN, Thomas Linda Greenfield, visit Africa several times. But the U.S. has not held summit regularly in the way that other countries have. What is the background or the reasoning behind it? Or is it just something that happened? For us, and you know, our position is that it's not just the engagement or the summits. You know, summitry is a, is a very unique, very large undertaking, but is not the end of the engagement. And as you said, the United States has had and has a long history, an enduring history with the continent, going all the way back to the founding of the Peace Corps, going back to when African countries first gained their independence and how President Kennedy and throughout the uh, subsequent administrations engage with leaders on the continent. And, you know, up to late 90s, when the HIV and AIDS crisis sort of reached its peak on, on the continent and, and President Bush established the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, what we know today as PEPFAR that is now recently celebrated its 20 years uh, of existence and the, the millions of lives that were saved across the continent because of that as well as the president's malarial initiative. But also, uh, you know, going back to the, the cultural exchanges, the Fulbright program and various educational and exchange programs, the Young Africa Leadership Initiative that was recently established, that recently celebrated its 10th anniversary as well. So we have a history. We have a strong history. We have an enduring history. And really the moment to, to meet and to talk about um, the current challenges is why uh, this specific moment was selected for the summit. But the summit is not the end of the engagement. I encourage you and I encourage others to look at the announcements that will be made during the summit, particularly as it relates to the how, the, the, the follow-up, the engagement um, following the summit, and how we will posture ourselves again to work with the continent to, to address challenges and lifting up opportunities, new ways where we are, are looking at additional actors and stakeholders um, who are, are really not new, have been there all along, the diaspora, how we will posture ourselves to incorporate greater voices from the African diaspora who we play host to um, here in the United States and the strength of those ties and how those ties 
can be used to partner to create a stronger policy because the more voices that are engaged in this process, the stronger our policy will be. So again, the summit is not the end of the engagement. It is a critical moment, but it's really about what happens after the summit that we should be evaluated on. The United States has done a lot on the continent. There's no doubt about it. They've engaged for decades now, as you said, going back to even before independence for a lot of countries. A couple of things that I want to, to, to focus on a little bit. So on one level, you mentioned a number of initiatives that had taken place that have been initiated before, if I can uh, repeat myself there, PAPFAR, PMI, and others. And then during President Obama tenure, during his time, during his two terms, by the time President Obama hosted the first summit, he had already visited Africa a couple of times. He had been to Egypt, where he addressed the Muslim world in 2009. He had been to Ghana that same year and addressed the parliament and the Ghana parliament, but really addressed the entire continent, talking about support for democracy and the end of strong men. And then he also had been to Senegal, South Africa, Tanzania, and announced uh, Power Africa. So when the summit took place, there was already this momentum between the African leaders or the African continent and the U.S. We had another eight years, as I said, where relationship happened differently. The world didn't stop. You have described that the world has changed quite a bit since then. Africa itself has changed quite a bit. But we have not heard a lot of signal to commitment in Africa over the last two years with President Biden. If that has been, maybe we have missed it. How do we bridge that gap as we go into the summit? If, if I may, I, I think you may have missed it. <laughs> Indeed, the momentum is there. Secretary Blinken launched the president's, this administration's strategy towards sub-Saharan Africa on the continent in August of 2022. And really, the summit is outward demonstration, you know, active demonstration of uh, many of those themes from the strategy, as well as, and you mentioned it in your introduction as well, we've had Ambassador uh, to the UN, Lynn Thomas-Greenfield, travel to the continent a couple of times. When Secretary Blinken rolled out the strategy, it was his second trip to the continent. had the pleasure of accompanying him on his first trip in November 2021, where he gave his first major policy speech on Africa. And we talked about, in that speech, he talked about the type of engagement that we are seeking with the continent, a mutually respectful engagement, a beneficial engagement and how we would treat our partners, our African partners as true partners, but really looking to elevate that relationship. And those themes were drawn from the president's uh, remarks himself in February, 2021, early on administration, his first engagement really with African leaders was his message to the African Union Leader Summit in February, 2021 where he laid out his posture and what the administration's posture would be in terms of our engagement with the continent. So, you know, our engagement, the momentum, as you say, is evident, it's there and has been since the early days of the administration. And and the summit next week is, is just the perhaps the biggest open <laughs> demonstration of that. And he's really looking forward to hosting all of the heads of state and heads of delegation here for that. Thank you for that reminder, Dana, for uh, the speech that the president gave. But I think this was in the midst of the COVID pandemic. And um, it was a big pronouncement. But I think Africans want to hear more. Secretary Blinken, 
administrative power and Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield have done, they've shown a lot of commitment in that space. But I think Africans have still been wondering, I mean, when we consider the previous administration that had gone kind of silent on Africa, so to speak, quote-unquote, those are my words, not theirs. But before that, I think there was a flurry of engagement through the Obama years and, of course, TEPFAR that you'd mentioned. I think that's what I'm referring to. But let's go on back to the summit itself. You mentioned 49 heads of states and government and so on. Is that the number that we're expecting at the summit? So, so far we have, or as of today, we have confirmation of 49 uh, heads of delegation. So whether it's at the head of state level or the head of government level, 49 heads of delegation from, from the invited countries, plus confirmation from the African Union Commissioner, Musafaki. So all of the countries who were invited and the AU by the president um, have confirmed attendance. So again, that's really exciting. And, and overwhelmingly, most of those are, are at the head of state level, except in a few cases. 54 countries on, on the continent, 49 heads of delegation. That's a large number. There's still five of them or so not coming or that you that are not there. If we say 49, so five is missing. Why is that? How did they get invited and why some are not coming? So our rubric uh, in extending invitations is that we really wanted to look to our African partners in terms of how uh, the invitations would be extended. And we decided upon extending invitations to countries who are currently in good standing with the African Union, meaning not suspended. And currently there are four countries who are suspended by the African Union for undemocratic transitions of of power. Additionally, uh, we did not extend an invitation to countries with whom we do not hold diplomatic relations, nor who we do not recognize. So that's how we get to to the rubric of the invitations. So those fours that are suspended will be what? Guinea, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Sudan. And then the country that uh, the United States does not have relationship will be what? Eritrea. And on the summit itself, what will be the structure of the scheduling of it? What? It's three days you mentioned. How do those three days span? So over the course of those three days, the summit will be uh, comprised of different sessions and foras and on the first two days and then leading up to the leaders discussion on December 15th. So the first day will have a series of foras, the African Diaspora Young Leaders Forum, Civil Society Forum, a NAGOA Trade Ministers Forum that Ambassador Tai will host. In the afternoon, we'll have a session, a health ministerial session, as well as a session on climate adaptation and a just energy transition, and also a space and commercial forum. It's a lot, <laughs> but that's day one and will be held at different locations around Washington, D.C. And some of the sessions earlier in the day will be available live stream for audiences on the continent as well. So we can have those voices in real time engaging and participating. The second day, December 14th, is an entire day devoted to private sector engagement, U.S. and African private sector engagement Again, to talk about how we can partner in this mutually beneficial way, right, the president laid out, to really realize um, the opportunities that abound on the continent 
while also, you know, creating, you know, job growth creation, as well as, you know, job growth and creation here in the import export sort of market that we find ourselves in today and how we really can work together to harness all of the potential and really not just potential, but the the power um, on the continent as this large free trade area that is is really um, burgeoning. The last day will be uh, leader level discussions with the president, vice president, members of the cabinet, and all of the assembled heads of delegation. We'll talk about how we can partner with the continent on achieving some of the aspirations that are that were set out in the Agenda 2063 document, the, the Africa we want, how, what is the U.S. role in, in helping to partner on that, as well as working on uh, amplifying African voices and working together um, more strongly on uh, a multilateral forum and globally. And then lastly, a session on the food security and strengthening systems. A really robust and packed three days with various stakeholders from the diaspora to civil society to health, climate, infrastructure, trade and investment, private sector, multilateral organizations. We probably could have extended this for a week and still not had enough time to talk about the range of issues that we have and and areas for cooperation and engagement with the continent. But we only have three days and we are going to get a lot done in those three days. And in addition to some social engagements, we expect the president and the first lady to host a dinner for the heads of delegation. There will be congressional engagement throughout the different sessions and foras as well. This really is a a whole of government sort of for for Africa, for U.S.-Africa relations. And it's a really exciting moment. It sounds like a very rich schedule. I would like to zoom in on a couple of those topics of the day and get a sense of what, uh, from where you stand, some of your expectations are. So uh, let's say with the African diaspora, which is an important piece of the relationship between the United States and those countries, uh, people coming here and people going over there as well and investing in the countries through transfer of knowledge and skills, uh, but also remittances and other ways that the diaspora can engage with the homeland. What is the expectation there on the diaspora and then on the civil society side? In terms of the diaspora, I think one, the overall expectation is that we look to build some sort of a concrete way of engaging the diaspora and having those voices present throughout policy discussions. But during the forum, what we're looking at, we're focusing on education, right? So if we talk about uh, the economic potential and talk about this large youth demographic across the continent who's more connected and capable and savvier than ever, how do we support that growth and how do we support leaders and entrepreneurs across the continent? So looking at, you know, upskilling and education again and working with private sector on that. In addition to when we talk about climate change and youth role in environmental issues and again, how that impacts communities on the continent and the linkages with our own youth environmental activists here and where there are similarities and points of convergence where we can partner together to address uh, some of the issues the, and the, the economic issues around climate change. And then last but certainly not least, I mean, this is the most obvious, but the engagement with the creative sector, whether it's in film, in fashion, in sports, in television, there is so much content that is created about the continent, either here about the continent 
and or transmitted on the continent or created on the continent and comes to the United States. And that is a power that is undeniable. Every time you maybe turn on the radio or stream your favorite music streaming application, it's there and it's and it's young people leading that way in large part. So how do we partner on that to really help harness that creative sector on the continent, harness that, that power and get greater access to the American market? On the Civil Society Forum, we're looking at the various voices that we have invited and that we're bringing into the conversation to talk about inclusive democracy and having, you know, diaspora voices as part of our policy process and how that strengthens the policy, having a breadth and a, and a depth of voices across various sectors can help to create a stronger democracy. So a chance to really lift up and listen to some of those voices who are shaping the future of their countries on the continent. And as you know, we work very closely with our embassies and USAID missions in the field in, in engaging different sectors of civil society and whether it's on exchange programs or, or other programs that we have, how we are uplifting these voices. So it's, it's these types of voices that will really speak to an inclusive democracy. Some of the themes that were laid out as well in another summit that the president hosted last year on Summit for Democracy and the follow-up summit that will be coming next year. So many of the, again, the themes of this summit are related to our overall administration posture, whether it's on democracy and human rights and inclusive democracies, but also for the continent where this is also key. And I might have omitted this earlier, but there's a peace and security and governance forum as well. But so the nexus of inclusive democracy and strong democracies who can really um, provide the service and give the service delivery to their people that is um, necessary are ultimately more stable and as not as susceptible to some of the undemocratic transfers of power that we've seen, unfortunately, on the continent for the past couple of years. Yeah, I'd wanted to, uh, to also ask you about the peace and security. You have uh, delved a bit onto the diaspora and civil society. On the peace and security, beside democracy, what are some of the expectations that you have, or anticipation at least you have, from the Africans as well? The forum during the summit, the Peace, Security and Governance Forum, is going to be headlined by the leadership of our 3D agencies, as we say, Defense, Democracy and Diplomacy. So Secretaries Blinken, Austin and Administrator Power. And again, talking about the nexus of those three sectors in creating stable countries and and hopefully heading off or preventing any future undemocratic transfers of power. And so really how the civilian side of, of the government can work better or how, how development, a greater role in development can lead to um, more stable countries uh, and more stable societies and where the government can come in to provide services not just for their people, but also for security forces and accountability is key in that as well. And how governments can hold and how the people can hold their governments accountable as well, by extension, the security forces accountable in order to really shape and sort of change the landscape in terms of overall security for their countries. So that discussion will have sort of a mix of audiences from those three sectors represented from the various countries and as well as as civil society and our own uh, departments of defense. State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development. 
as we have seen and acknowledged in recent legislation that was passed called the Global Fragility Act, but also the resulting program that came out, out of that to uh, promote stability and, and reduce the chance for conflict. And the countries or the target areas on the continent are Mozambique, where we've seen sort of this resurgence of terrorists in northern Mozambique, but also in coastal West Africa, where those countries on the littoral coast are susceptible to some of the instability streaming from the Sahel. So how to work in those three components on the diplomacy, defense, and development side to assist those governments as they try to fight off this threat that's moving down from the Sahel. It really is a very timely and poignant topic and forum. And I think What we hope to see out of that is that partnership, some experiential peer learning from other countries to help bolster their neighbors, because that's really what this is about. We have no greater interest in promoting stability and preventing conflict on the continent than do neighboring countries on the continent who are susceptible to some of this instability. So it should be a really good practical and useful discussion with some concrete outcomes in terms of how to partner to achieve some of these goals. So you also mentioned the business sector. Early on, you did refer to the uh, African Free Trade, uh, Continental uh, Free Trade Agreement. Um, What are the expectations in that space? I mean, one area you referred to the uh, Africa strategy that Secretary Blinken launched out of Pretoria on his last visit in South Africa there. I mean, the strategy is strong as a lot of interesting points, namely the focus on partnership with Africa, but also respecting African voice, meaning the free the agency as countries. The one thing that was not front and center was the private sector. This time you'll be holding this one day of meetings on the private sector, business, so on. What, uh, what's the vision there? The vision for the business forum? That's easy. The vision is, is that we've heard loud and clear from, from our, our African partners through engagements, trips. I've been on accompanying Secretary Blinken on the continent and various other officials who have traveled to the continent. We, we all compare notes. And what we've heard is that our African partners want greater U.S. private sector engagement in their countries. So we, as the government, We do what we do best. We are playing the convening role in convening the private sector. We have about 250 both American and African companies registered to participate in the business forum, along with the heads of state, obviously, and and philanthropies, investors, private investors, institutional investors to come and to talk about, you know, investment and our trade and investment posture overall as the United States, but then in key areas such as agriculture, supporting a digital transformation on the continent and what that looks like in infrastructure. It's a big focus for us in this administration. So having a discussion about greater infrastructure investment, and particularly when we look at energy in the energy sector, as well as in healthcare, all of these key topical areas that really do taken in total comprise what is infrastructure and what is needed for the continent to really realize its full economic potential and to grow that. We are very excited to to play that convening role because, again, government can't do it alone. The private sector has to play a role as well. And so we're looking to help facilitate these discussions to what we call matchmake and make sure that the companies who are sought after by the countries and the heads of state are able to actually make those connections and have those discussions 
And there are already some deals in place that have been lined up that will be announced in our deal rooms that our Prosper Africa team has established for the business forum. And if you recall, Prosper Africa is an initiative that takes the toolkit of 17 U.S. government departments and agencies who are implicated or involved in some way in promoting trade and investment on the continent. So it will be, again, a jam-packed day, a busy day, but also, I think, a fruitful day in terms of real deals and real dollars. This also means this is an opportunity for the U.S. Exim Bank and the Development Finance Corporation and um, their sister organization, I think, to shine, to come to the fore. A lot of those institutions do work in Africa, but not quite at the scale where Africans have been expecting them to rise. So we hope this will be an opportunity for that as well. You mentioned a few things. We talked at length about the diaspora, civil society development, business sector, agriculture, and so on. A couple areas that have been challenging that for Africans we talk to across the continent. You talked a lot about the creatives and the partnerships there and the the two-way streets where they bring skill, we invest, and so on. One challenge that has been, you are very familiar with, this is the visa side. As we talk about partnership with Africa, with strategy, we talk about the talent, the bridging of this talent on both sides of the Atlantic. How does that work? Because this has been a big elephant in the room or in many rooms. Even business people struggle now to get visa to the U.S. Is this going to be part of the agenda and hopefully open the road to a better engagement on that side? So even I, sitting here at the National Security Council, cannot address specifically visa issues. It's a multi-tiered issue and that has to uh, really be addressed directly by our State Department colleagues who have that, that in their writ. But I can say that I know that we or the State Department, like other industries who are impacted by the pandemic, had a long road to, to tow in terms of catching up from a backlog that occurred as a result of reduced services and staff. During the pandemic, they're working very hard to address that. And I do know that in some countries in particular, there have been tries made and steps taken to address that backlog and to get it down so that wait times are not as long and as onerous. But we are aware that that is a challenge and our State Department consular affairs colleagues are, are working to, uh, to address that. The other issue that has been on the mind of a lot of analysts is bilateral meetings. When African leaders travel to other summits, whether in France or in Africa or China or Turkey, they tend to have this time with the counterpart. In the U.S., African leaders have struggled to get those meetings with the president of the United States. Is this on the agenda on this time? Will they get any time with President Biden himself beside the dinner that the first lady and the president will be hosting for them? If this is only a second summit, I don't know if we can say that it's been a struggle. I know that during the, the 2014 summit, based on our careful look at the records, there were unfortunately not uh, any side or bilateral meetings held. I mean, 50 heads of delegation. And if you do the math and you have three days and only one one of us, one president on our side, it's hard to try to have every every delegation, head of delegation have that individual touch. But what I can say is throughout the three days, whether it's the president, the vice president, cabinet officials and other U.S. government representatives that we will make sure that there is significant engagement 
with the heads of delegation, heads of state who will be here. And again, I think it's important to remember that a summit is not a deliverable, as we say. It's not the end of the engagement. It's really what is after. How is the follow-up done? And I, I encourage you and others to look at how we posture ourselves to follow up with our partners on the continent. I think that's the key and that should be the measure of success. Very good. We, I agree with you there. But then um, we thought about that in 2014, you know, that we end up spending another eight years wondering about that. One, one other point I wanted to ask you about, uh, Dana, it's become a tradition for the United States president, um, you know, to visit Africa. Bill Clinton, President uh, George Bush, um, President Obama. That didn't happen over the Trump years. People have been waiting to hear whether President Biden will be visiting Africa and when. Well, I think they'll have to wait a little bit more, a little bit longer. We'll see what's announced next week. Thank you very much, Dana Banks, for joining us today. We really appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. So long.